Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Welcome to the Investor Hour podcast. I'm your host Rahul Goel. The goal of this podcast is to learn from the best investment minds of our times. We want to learn their backstory, essentially what makes them them. We want to learn how they make their decisions in their personal lives, and of course. we want to learn about their core principles of investing essentially a lot of learning that could help you make better decisions in life and investing if there is one fund manager who has grabbed the attention of investors over the last 10 years it's rajiv thakkar of ppfas mutual fund or the parag parik mutual fund rajiv walks his own path which often turns out to be contrarian his decision to invest in international stocks way back when was only one such move then there were numerous other moves related to stock specific and sector bets the key is that over time the outcome of his investment approach which he calls first principles investing has worked out super well talking to him was a delight i hope you make the time and listen to the entire episode uh, rajiv welcome to the equity master mint uh, investor hour delighted to have you uh, i'd like to kick off this uh, uh, podcast session by asking you uh, about your really the early stages of your life so if you can tell us a little bit about where were you born and you grew up and also a little bit about your parents and the environment in your home with regards to what kind of a uh, like uh, about money was it a, uh, were they investing not investing trying to get a feel of where you came from sure so i've been born and brought up in mumbai so been a mumbai boy all along so including studies and career i have never stayed outside of the city for an extended period of time okay. uh most of the life uh, in the early part was in and around the western suburbs of mumbai uh, and within a 2 2-3 km radius so uh, nothing much to talk about in that sense uh so uh these days we have all communication which comes to us uh, electronically uh in the early days it was a era of paper communication so uh, my father was an equity investor since early days although the amounts are not very large but he was a serious investor in terms of uh doing uh fundamental investing in groups that he thought were well run and uh, Uh, although it was not a very sophisticated uh, approach but it was fundamentally investment driven approach and not a speculative approach wow. so i grew up with these uh, annual reports coming by post uh, wow to home so that that was where uh, i got familiar with equity as an investment class also uh, there is this thing called spirit of the times right so my graduation year was 1992 super <laughs> th- th- that was the period of the equity boom the yeah. early days of liberalization after a tough situation of being virtually bankrupt so today just like everyone would rush to a startup or a ai company at that time people of my age would Uh, have this attraction towards the stock market so that's where i am wonderful so uh, one thing that intrigued me is when you mentioned that your father was doing some form of fundamental analysis 
because typically when I'm talking to guests on the podcast, I'm typically hearing that, uh, you know, they were investing in IPOs, right? That, that was a common theme those days. Or there were some stray investments or some family member told them. But I'm, I'm pretty amazed. Did your father have any, uh, what was he professionally, what was he doing? Did that give an exposure that you should look at numbers, etc.? Uh, I don't know how uh, he actually managed to uh, get into the field because uh, even in the family, uh, other relatives or elders would tend to look down upon stock investing as something like a gambling thing or uh, stuff like that. But uh, one good thing about my father was that uh, is that uh, whichever subject interests him, uh, he would end up picking up uh, one or two books uh, on that subject matter and just skim through it, make uh, those uh, notings and try and figure out uh, what the field was about. So like he had interest in photography at that time. Today, not so much. He's not into photography today. But at that time, he would buy books on photography and those were the days of the real camera. So what kind of lighting, what kind of angle. Similarly, for investing, he had a couple of books. Now, these were not the, uh, probably the best books he could have picked up. So these were not the Benjamin Graham kind of books. Uh, but nevertheless, they spoke about uh, what is the equity base? What is the total market value of a company? What is earning per share? So some very, very basic things were there in those early books. Wow. I wonder who picked up that trait of digging deep into ideas. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you said you graduated in 1992. Uh, that would be your bachelor's? That is correct. Bachelor's and, of Commerce. And Commerce. Uh, if I may ask, was it Jayant or? I Narsi Monji. Uh, NM, 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 NM. Okay. Those are the, that's the two kilometers you went, the uh, radius. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so you did your graduation and then what did you do after your graduation? So, uh, the messaging was clear that uh, whatever you want to do later on, first get your academics right. And uh, it was not that immediately after graduation, I had a pathway to uh, join a mutual fund or investment bank. So, I wanted to get the academic credentials correct. So, I pursued my chartered accountancy after that. So that was the first time I ventured outside of the two kilometer radius. The <laughs> uh, office was uh, in the street called Ambadal Doshi Mark, which is parallel to the Lal Street, that overlooks the BAC. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. where my audit firm was. So uh, three years of chartered accountancy, two years in the audit firm, BD Chokhakar and Company. And the third year, uh, chartered accountants have the option of working for a corporate and it's called industrial training. So the third year I moved to an investment bank to do my uh, industrial training and uh, started doing things like uh, proofreading the IPO prospectuses and stuff like that. Wow, that's a pretty straight path, huh? Yeah, the interest was in that field. So uh, rather than stick around doing uh, one more year of audit uh, went to where my calling was in terms of. Oh, I can all, almost speculate. You were primed for it because in your home you had someone who's like reading, digging deep. Uh, then you had this whole Harshad Mehta. 
Harsha Mehta 92 was of course the, the crash as well but the whole build up to it was kind of fascinating if you did your homework uh so yeah so in this period before you became a professional you know a stock picker analyst uh, when did you actually get around to making your first uh, investment the first investment was uh i would think in 1995 uh, so oh, okay. uh, before that there was no investable surplus so yeah. uh at that time uh, audit trainees the uh, article clerks as they are called would get 235 rupees as the monthly stipend and uh, even at a discounted rate for the railway pass it would not cover the uh, commute so most of the money would go there there was no investable surplus that only came in 95 and that's when uh, investing started they made you ensure that you are investing a lot in the studies so you have to do well uh so uh 95 so if you made your investment in 95 that's the whole ipo boom is on uh so ipo boom has come it has started wobbling okay. the crashes so uh again it it sounds very romantic uh 92 you graduate and move towards financial markets what you have to remember is 1992 to 2003 the markets kept going up and down up and down and more down than up so yeah. it was a lost decade for the indian financial markets and at the end of 11 years you were scratching your head uh, when did i come meaning uh, was it the right decision even to uh, come to stock markets rather than do uh, plain vanilla audits or taxation and stuff like that yeah yeah i think we, uh, i i don't know and maybe you can shed some light on this uh, but this is uh, happened across the world right where there, there's a decade long period where if you've not timed it to perfection you could come out at the other end of 10 years with nothing and uh, that can be pretty painful experience and then i think there's those all those famous studies right if you miss the five most the highest return days in a decade the returns would be almost nothing and i guess that's what that period turned out to be if you missed the 99 surge and did not exit after that or if you missed the 2000 i think 1994 also had a surge and did not exit you could have ended at the other end with not much returns yeah so 99 was more in a select set of stocks so it was all about ice or tmt yeah, yeah. yeah so technology media tech telecommunications or information communication entertainment those kind of acronyms were floating around and uh, new economy versus the old economy uh, that's right and stuff like that so it was a tough period uh, that was the decade when a lot of uh, companies got founded which went on later years to become great uh, wealth creators but while living through it it did not seem yeah, easy yeah, yeah. so you had the infosys listing happening in that period or you had the banks like hdfc bank and all uh, yeah. create wealth and you had the kotak listing which earlier was in the nbfc avatar and later on morphed into a bank but uh, yeah so lot of interesting companies uh, came about but uh, yeah living through it was not so easy 
No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. So mm-hmm. uh, let's uh, let's stick to the timeline that we usually do. So 1992, stock market crash. You graduated, so you're aware of the situation. What impression did it create on you? The Husserl method spike and the meltdown. So one thing was clear that uh, the manipulated stocks did not have longevity. So uh, leaving aside the fact that temporarily it made a lot of people uh, paper wealth, but that was not sustainable. So uh, things which crashed and which came back were fundamentally sound companies, whereas companies which were clearly manipulated or did not have revenue and earnings behind them uh, withered away. So uh, that was the learning of that period. Quality works out in the long term, basically. That's what you have to stick to. Okay. And uh, 1995 uh, or 94, 95. 94, I think the FII boom and the sell-off and then the IPO wobbling that you referred to. How was that period for you? Now you're doing your articles, you're doing your CA, more familiar with numbers. Yeah, so uh, as I said, 94, I moved to industrial training, uh, doing the paperwork for IPOs. And 95 was when I cleared my chartered accountancy exam and uh, became a full-time employee in the investment banking cell. So by that time, the IPOs had started petering out. And within the next year or two, by I think if I if memory serves me right, by end 96, uh, the entire IPO market had been washed out. So there was absolutely no work to do uh, in the department. You would show up at the office, but no company was going public and there was no due diligence to be done or no uh, uh, document to be drafted. So it was that kind of period. And uh, then, of course, we had the whole Asian crisis. That's uh, uh, 97, the 98, Russia went bust. Yeah. Uh, how did that phase play out for you? Leading on to then the 99 big TMP. Take us through the whole period, how sure. your experience was and what were you doing professionally as well? Sure. So uh, 1994 to 2003, uh, I was a jack of all trades. I cycled through various departments in the financial markets. So uh, 94 to end 96 or mid 97, I was doing IPOs. Then for a brief stint, I was doing corporate finance where the company that I worked for uh, was raising money from lenders. So interacting with bankers and negotiating lines and managing the company's cash flow. So it was corporate treasury, or corporate finance, as it was called. So this was uh, mid-96 to maybe mid-97 kind of period, one year. Uh, And then I moved to bonds, uh, uh, government security bonds, uh, interbank uh, market. So as I said, IPO market was done and dusted. No IPOs were coming out and there was no work. And uh, I was not enjoying the... uh, corporate finance bit because the company that I was working for had borrowed a lot of money and it was not uh, a great situation to be in to be continuously answering bankers and stuff like that. So 
bonds was a good place to be in. And uh, at that time, the interest rates were very, very attractive for the investors. And that market was seeing a lot of activity. So that's when I moved to the government bond desk. Okay. And uh, uh, you're still at the investment bank? Uh, yeah, the same company, the first yeah. employer. So okay. uh, even in... Uh, 97, I was working with the same organization, but I had okay. moved from investment banking to corporate finance to the government bond desk. Wow. Okay. So you're starting to get a pretty holistic understanding of money. Yeah, whichever way you look at the, it. Yeah, jack of all sides. trades or uh, lattice work of mental models, you can. <laughs> That's right. So I think I think one of the most underrated things in this uh, generation is the fact that a jack of all trades can create a model which may end up being far superior than someone who specialized only in one field, right? So there are advantages, disadvantages of both, if you will. Okay, what happens next, 90, 98 onwards? So uh, 98... Uh... Late 98 is when I get married. Okay. And uh, just before my wedding day, uh, or meaning a month before that, or uh, 15 days before that, the company starts laying off people. I am not the affected party, but oh it's my God. Yeah. a jittery environment all around. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, did your did your uh, would be wife come to you and have a chat? <laughs> no, so she was not aware of what was happening. Mm -hmm. uh, so I didn't want to unnecessarily scare her, especially since uh, I was not the affected party. Okay. I said after uh, things have settled down, it's time to move on to another company. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I moved to another company in the same field, doing government bonds. Okay. So I was. Uh, doing government bonds till 2003 and uh, 2001 was when i joined ppfs in the on the government bonds desk okay so ppfs we want to talk about a little bit more uh, and one of the reasons i want to talk especially about that is uh, i want to of course learn, uh, understand and hear your story i also want you to sh share with us as we discuss uh, your understanding or your perspective on how Parag Parik saw the world and what did he bring to the table? Because I think that's a story that is not very well told per se. Uh, because I think maybe the you know, capital markets boomed a lot after that or whatever, whatever could be the reason. But I think that is a perspective that a lot of people could benefit from because he's he really built a venerable research house and uh, that is metamorphosed into uh, your mutual fund, which is, of course, you know, it's right up there. So that's something we'd like to talk about more. But uh, as we go along, so I want to just make a point on bonds. Now, typically, if I talk to Indian investors, bonds are boring. The closest they can come to a bond in those days was an RBI relief bond, right? If you remember those days, I don't even remember the rate of interest, probably 8% tax-free or 9% tax-free. Uh, but bonds by themselves is a very large asset class globally. Uh, in India, still, it's a closed market, a relatively closed market. But uh, I see that even in your uh, 
in your mutual fund, you've done something pretty innovative is you are starting to pick out bonds of state governments and you're finding yield opportunities, which all carry sovereign risk. So you're not really doing that. So uh, what is your take on this whole bonds thing? And the whole world gets shaken and bond market shake in India. You know, if you turn on the morning news, they give one line to the bond market and it's back to the stock market. Yeah, so uh, the reason why no one looks at that market anymore is that we have had close to, I think, a decade or two where uh, bonds gave hardly any real return. And for some time in a lot of markets, the return was negative even in nominal terms, leave aside in real terms. So why would anyone put money in a bond which was guaranteed to lose money for you? So you put in 100 instead of getting back 100 plus interest, you would get back, let's say, 98. Why would anyone put money there? The period I am talking about will almost sound like a fantasy to people today. So today when uh, longer term index returns have been around 12% from equities, 1997 when I joined the government bond desk, that time the 10-year government bond yield was 14% per annum, paid semi-annually. Wow. That time Tata Steel and LNT, AAA names at that time, were borrowing money at 18% and a AAA rated NBFC of that time, Reliance Capital, was raising company fixed deposits at 21% per annum. Wow. So uh, it's really the time one is in. So if uh, there's going to be an elongated period of equities going nowhere and being very volatile up and down and uh, where relatively low risk instruments are giving you uh, high teen returns, why would one want to go yeah. to equities in such a period? Yeah. It's only when rates fell uh, very significantly and uh, where yields were not attractive and the earnings multiples became very, very cheap in 2013, that the in 2003, Three, that the yeah. attention turned back to equities. Equities, yeah. So, uh, uh, in, uh, speaking of bonds itself, I think one thing nice the RBI has done, and I think there's a long way to go, they've opened their RBI retail direct, where you can directly buy bonds. Now, I guess I, uh, now all in the realm of uh, speculation, if the yields become attractive again, then more retail guys can get to participate in this over time. We'll have to see how it pans out. Uh, I, I'm not that optimistic, Rahul, on no, you know, RBI's... Uh, yeah. Bond and uh, you have uh, taken up a topic which incites passion in me. So maybe I'll spend yeah, a few yeah. minutes on this. The reason why the retail uh, retailing efforts of the government periodically go nowhere is because they compete against themselves. Uh, so today, uh, if you buy any government security as a retail investor, uh, you are locked into a security where if you want the money back, you have to again come back to the market to sell it and where there may be liquidity, there may not be liquidity. Also, you are carrying a 
price risk or interest rate risk if after you have bought the securities if interest rates rise you may have to exit at a loss today when 5 lakh rupees worth of bank fixed deposits are protected by insurance in terms of dicgc cover and rbi stroke government will not let you fail uh, and in india on uh, bank fixed deposits the investors have a free free put option you can any day go to the bank and say uh, give me a reduced interest rate no problem charge me some penalty but give me my money back and the bank will give you your money back so in a in such a situation why should anyone go to government securities is a puzzle also most of the times the small savings yields which are again government securities are typically higher than the rates on central government securities uh, it's only now that they are at more or less parity but otherwise on in most periods uh, the uh, small saving rates are much higher for the retail investors so again they don't come to the uh, tradable securities markets so unless some of these issues are ironed out i don't think that market will develop too much yeah it's a, that's a fair point i didn't think about it on those lines i was just thinking by someone's looking at a zero credit risk but then you make the point you can go to the small saving scheme they have the same credit risk as a treasury bond both are guaranteed by the government of india so and even make... uh, till 5 lakh rupees which would cover Anyways, most yeah. investors yeah. Uh, and you can spread that 5 lakh across five banks then yeah. you have 25 lakh limit so oh. uh or you could go to an extreme last evening we are recording this of course uh, in the third week of march last evening i read about a company in the us which has opened 3000 bank accounts and <laughs> put money in it so that if any bank goes bankrupt their money is safe so do the math 3000 into 200000 assuming they're keeping a little buffer you know that's like what 600 million dollars or whatever the number is and no yeah so uh, i think a lot of work needs to be done to popularize that i think yeah. in the intermediate terms uh, term a mutual fund route for retail investors makes a lot of sense where it creates a lot of convenience for the investors to enter yeah, and exit yeah. uh, relatively easily yeah yeah okay so to uh, 2003 you were at ppfas now uh, there are two three major episodes in the next 20 years there is this massive bull run which starts in 2003 4 it takes off and peaks at 2007 8 uh, then we have that uh, what is that uh, uh, period called 2013 onwards uh, policy paralysis and yeah and, and domestic policy paralysis and globally you have that risk in the emerging markets and all that Paper tantrums and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, paper tantrum and all that. That starts, and then you have the pandemic. So take us through these twenty years and just tell us how it plays out. How when you think about it, how it each played out, and how did you deal with those issues? Yeah. So uh, as I said, two thousand one, I joined PPFS on the government bond desk, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Mr. Parag Parag Paragbhai, as we used to call him, uh, he would. take us out for dinner uh, uh, once a week generally chat about what's happening in the marketplace and uh, 
stuff like that. And 2003 is a period where we have been running portfolio management services for about five, six years. Uh, so we started late uh, seven years close to late 96, we started our PMS services and we are somewhere in early 2003 uh, chatting about various things. So it tells me we have been running PMS for whatever, six, seven years and the corpus has just grown to about uh, 3.85 crore, sub 4 crore AUM at that time. This is, uh, people are just not keen on equities because the markets have been up and down, up and down and uh, people are losing uh, faith in equities. So I said, yeah, it, but it seems to be uh, the best time probably to come to equities. And I was, and we were discussing the performance of debt mutual funds and we were discussing equities at that time. So debt funds had given the returns of close to 20% per annum to retail investors. And uh, there was so much love for debt funds at that point in time and you could do no wrong buying debt funds. So I, I mentioned that uh, yeah. government bonds were 14%, triple A bonds were 18% and all that. So anyone who bought those bonds not only got the coupon rate, but because interest rates started falling, they also benefited from the bond prices going up. So there was dual benefit for the investors. So while chatting, I mentioned to him that most of the juice over there seems to be uh, sucked out uh, because yields on uh, 10 year government bonds, if I remember correctly, were close to 5%, 5, 5.5% 5 per annum. And at that time, the expense ratios on debt mutual funds were higher than what they are today. So maybe a percent and a half. So I said, out of 5.5%, if you remove 1.5%, that means return is. 4% and I don't expect rates to keep falling. They have fallen from 14% to 5.5%. There's not much downside left now, now that it's very close to inflation rates and stuff like that. He says, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, going forward, debt may not give much. Uh, so I said, but we also have an equity disk. And around that time, some measures were announced by the government on the tax policy front. So okay. dividends were made tax-free, capital gains were made tax-free, long-term capital gains after one year of holding. So, and at that time, uh, a company like a Hero Honda, it was called Hero Honda then, there was a JV still going on, was quoting at 180 rupees and with a uh, 18 or a 20 rupee come dividend kind of price, which is meaning 10% kind of dividend yield. It was tax-free to investors. I said, here you have 4% return and investors will end up paying some tax on that. And at the other end, purely in terms of the current yield, it's 10% tax-free and plus whatever growth they're able to pull off. To both of us, at the end of that conversation and over the next few weeks we were chatting, to us it felt like a no-brainer to shift from debt to equity. 
uh, and by that time things were so bad that almost all the people had left the yeah. desk so uh, in our team we we were left with no personnel in the equity team so he asked me would you want to work in equities i said yeah sure why not <laughs> that's where i moved from the bond desk to the equity desk wow wow so uh and and a brilliant call at that right you had a fundamental reason for it and i think uh, uh you can actually play out the uh, the stock market cycles basis the interest rate cycles to a large extent yeah, so there could... were two great timing calls in that in the career so i joined the bond desk right when interest rates were at their highs and the bull market was about to start and i exited and entered the equity market right when the equity was about to take off so you so you went there uh, on the equity desk you started doing all your hero under stuff etc and the next 4 years was superb i would imagine and and at some point it tips into irrationality yeah next so next 4 years were great for the stock markets in general for me the first 3 years were great fourth year was terrible for me 2007 was terrible uh let, let me of, guess because you exited early or no because i was not buying the stuff that was on sale yeah. uh working in the marketplace so the sectors that were in fancy were real estate stocks infrastructure stocks right. and commodity stocks and mm-hmm. we were not participating in those three sectors at that point in time so we did not have the uh, dlf and unitex of the world or gmr gvk lanco neither did we have the commodity companies yeah. so in ino and mm-hmm. so 2007 we were underperforming the index by a substantial margin yeah but i think so in this phase so to so let's say 2000 you're sitting with uh, parag bhai and you're telling him you know that makes sense this may be a good time to do equity so you're already thinking about equities by now a lot more than what you're used to you're trying to get a model in your head this is how things should be and why and they like this and you're trying to come up with a high conviction idea now you enter probably one of the biggest bull markets anyone will see and you're riding that you ride it till a point of rationality and then you're saying okay i'm going to stay away from these sectors oh you are four years on the equity desk you don't have a whole ton of background on equities so so what was the process that led you to make that call what did you develop what kind of mental models what kind of process you had developed by then that gave you that conviction to do it and how did you convince parag bhai about that tell us both the sides sure so one is i was not alone uh, so with me was another colleague of mine called nirjar handa who passed away a few years back but he was a few years younger to me so two of us were uh, running the pms desk uh, at ppfs so uh, there was a person who was a mentor to parag bhai as well as a mentor to the research team and he's been a mentor to lot of people in the stock market uh his name was mr chandrakant sampat so uh he used to come to our office and talk to us about uh how to look at 
different managements, how to look at different sectors, what to look for in the uh, balance sheet and in the PNL account and stuff like that. So he was very, very uh, grounded in terms of the fundamentals of the company. And uh, Paraguay also has had seen various cycles uh, in his career. So he had, uh, in fact, he had gone through a similar phase in late 90s, uh, where he was not in the then fancied sector of TMT, ICE, and where just because a company changed its name to a, something which was a dot-com kind of name, the stock price would run away. And obviously, he could not recommend buying such a company or he would put out a sell on such a company and the stock would continue running away. So he, uh, around that time, he said, let me take a break. <laughs> Nothing seems to be working. So that's where he pursued uh, his study of behavioral finance and stuff like that. So he had seen multiple cycles in the past and he knew that these things come about. So 2007, we had pressures uh, on two fronts. So one is newer clients, the clients who had come in, let's say 2007, they saw that we were lagging the indices by a huge margin. So they were getting restless. And some of my colleagues who were relationship managers to those clients or whose job was to actually go out and meet people and try and convince them to become our clients if the wavelength matched. Yep. Those people were saying, what are these guys in the research and investment team doing? Uh, all these new age companies are coming and land mm -hmm. bank and infra and all that. And these guys just don't seem to get it. So that's when uh, I had the support of Paraguay and he said, these things keep coming and going. You can't uh, just go behind what is fanciful and uh, leave behind the basic yeah. principles of management quality, balance sheet quality, uh, competitive advantage and return on capital and valuation and those kind of things just to chase a stock which is going up. So he stood behind the investment team and uh, things worked out in 2008. So, so, so uh, you know, uh, it's it's typical, Rajiv. You, you said that you were... Chandrakan Sampath was coming and talking to you guys. So you had a voice of sanity. You're mentioning Parag Bhai had seen this before, been there, done that. So he was supportive. What gave you the conviction? You're telling me people who reinforced your conviction. What gave you the conviction? So a lot of reading. So by that time, uh, in that period of 2001 to 2006, 2007, that period, I had gone through all the books, uh, uh, the usual suspects, uh, Buffett letters and books on Buffett, uh, Benjamin Graham, Peter Lynch, uh, the usual things in terms of market mania, so extraordinary popular delusions and yep. those kind of books, madness of crowd. So, uh, although my own experience was not in terms of managing professional money. Uh, I had understanding of the history. And another piece that I left out uh, so far in our discussions is that although in my 
earlier organization, I was not managing equity investments or I was not a fund manager, but I had seen what had happened to their prop book. So uh, 1995? Uh, 1994 onwards. So the organization yeah. I was working for was a big prop trader uh, okay. on its own account. And there I had seen the effects of leverage, the effects of getting in with uh, uh, management, which is not really up there and uh, those kind of things. So I, I was aware of the 92 boom bust, the uh, dot-com boom bust. Uh, I'd seen those cycles. So although professionally 2007 was the first cycle where I was managing money for others, yeah. but otherwise I was aware of the past boom bust cycles. Yeah. So it goes back to that thesis, right? You don't have to make all the mistakes yourself. You can learn from the mistakes of others. Uh, you can read the books. You can absorb the learnings. Uh, you know, learn from the mistakes of others. Uh, and you've had you've been very close to it in the sense you were in the firm which was doing all this prop prop trading and all and and uh, so so yeah. So uh, I guess the learning in that is, of course, you study history, internalize it, and then believe in it, right? The reading for the sake of reading and then not acting on it was not going to help you. You have to make those thoughts your own, ideas your own, and do it. So then, of course, you got uh, you were proved right. Two thousand and nine, by two thousand nine, everything was done and dusted. Infrastructure, itself, yeah. Two thousand eight, real estate stocks, infrastructure stocks, all these had got wiped off, and a huge, huge destruction of wealth. So your, I, I'm sure your portfolio performance was <laughs> yes. back back to where you're used to being. Yes. Uh, then what happens next? So, so you passed your first test as a proper, proper equity manager with flying colors. Yeah. Uh, so then for a few years, it's uh, business as usual. We keep managing equity investments and things like that. And that was the time where the earliest signs start coming in where uh, Paragwe and I have a discussion, a discussion where we feel that uh, PMS may not be the best vehicle going forward because of certain changes which have come in, which could come down the road. Uh, at that time, uh, for a, us to onboard a client, uh, the client had to invest a minimum of 5 lakh of rupees. Okay. Now, this 5 lakh was increased to 25 lakhs and 50 lakhs later on. So, there were early signs that the entry amount would be increased quite a bit. So that was a challenge in terms of immediately uh, a large section of the client base uh, has a problem getting onboarded with us. The procedurally things were becoming difficult in terms of uh, opening so many bank accounts, so many DMAT accounts, so many custody accounts, brokerage agreements. Yep. Conciliations, yep. audits. So, if you are managing ten accounts, twenty accounts, that is easy. But when it number starts going into hundreds, then that's when operationally things start becoming difficult in the PMS structure. So, around for various reasons, around that time we felt that we should uh, explore the possibility of setting up an AMC. So, yeah, I think. We started work on this in 2009 and it took us four years to actually 
wow. operationalize it. Yeah, it's time consuming for sure. So, uh, okay, so uh, we, we, we'll talk about the pandemic as we go along. Uh, now, I'm, I may be wrong on this, but I'm going to sort of still ask that question with an assumption. So a, a lot of people have, uh, in the investing, uh, stuck to the old Warren Buffett style of investing, which is buying the deeply discounted stocks and waiting for the prices to correct. At some point in time, at least I felt, when, when, you, know, when you all started investing in a mutual fund, when it was public, that uh, maybe at the same time as Buffett or a little later, a little early, I don't know, you had already moved to buying a good company at a fair price logic and then holding it on and, you know, because the world had changed or something had changed. So talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, what, what your whole thinking and thought process is and what you believe it to be now. What is the right approach in your view? So uh, in my days as an individual investor, and I mentioned that first investment was probably in 95. Uh, at that time, I was a person buying cheap stocks in terms of uh, low P, high dividend yield, uh, where statistically you could say that this is undervalued. But the person that I mentioned, Mr. Chandrakant Sampath, he was always a quality investor. So uh, I think he was... Uh, Manga's age probably, and he was uh, uh, in that kind of mold of thinking and uh, in terms of frugality, someone like Buffett. Uh, so he was always in the quality camp. So from 2003 onwards, I was exposed to high quality, high quality all the time. Uh, so I still retained some of my fascination for extremely cheap stocks, but the importance of quality was drilled fairly early on and one realization which I had uh, pretty much early in a few years time since I began managing money is that in the western countries at least you can be an activist investor or you can support some activist investor to either change management or to throw out cash or to spin off loss making divisions in India nothing doing so you have three categories of promoters uh, one is the government of india for the psus second is mnc subsidiaries in india and third is the indian business families and almost all the three categories they are the dominant shareholders and you have to go with what they are doing you can't do much in terms of changing how the companies run so a lot of times if you buy a badly run company, which is undervalued, uh, where let's say your estimate of intrinsic value is 100 and the stock price is 50, what will happen is the intrinsic value will fall from 100 to 50 and below rather than the market price going up to 100. Uh, so it's always better to buy well-run companies where your estimate may be 100 and stock is available at 90. But over a period of time, that 100 will go to 200 and your stock price may go to 200 or beyond. And uh, that is far better than buying a badly run company and waiting for something to happen. 
so you 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 came upon this idea primarily because you know in india it's difficult to effect change in management uh, so for different reasons but you came on to the same idea and uh, just for our listeners and viewers chandrakant sampath was of course very popular for his large holdings in the mnc stocks i think procter and gamble nestle and stocks like those which are very high p but they still delivered year after year and the game hype uh, not at that time rahul so uh, i can you can you refresh our memory in uh, what you what it used to be those days so companies like pedelite and marico were 10 11 12 times earnings in 2003 are <laughs> and levers and all would trade at maybe levers nestles would be at 20 times earnings or 25 times earnings so wow. they were higher than the commodity companies like tata steel yeah. and all that but uh nowhere close to where they trade uh, at the current valuations and in fact uh he was a long term holder and he would own companies for a very very long period of time but yeah. i remember when uh hul had shot up quite a bit and a lot of the earnings growth was because of mnda where they had merged brook bond and mm-hmm. a few other companies he felt that valuations were not sustainable and he had exited hul at one point in time oh wow no i don't think many people know that that he was all also someone who would exit if the valuation was high people usually think of him as purely buy and hold okay so you you uh, you spoke about that uh, and i think man thank you for sharing that all about paying a fair price for a good company because i think that's very important even more so in the indian context where we've got all these additional risks uh let's talk about the pandemic uh when did you first hear about something going wrong in the world in terms of a pandemic uh feb 2020 feb you, you did not have like a early uh, early signal in early jan late december 19 no, no no and how how did you what was your reaction what do you think uh i underestimated the impact it could have on the world so what happens in uh the world is that the experts or subject matter experts uh predict 10 out of the last one crisis or they <laughs> predicted 100 out of the last 10 crises so uh they keep saying wolf is coming wolf is coming and you can't just rush out of the door every time someone right. screams yeah so uh, you've had ebola you have had sars and uh, various kind of uh, zika 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 and all yeah. that so yeah. obviously one has to take precautions and if one is going to the affected areas maybe wear masks or try not to go to affected areas and stuff like that but uh, i was reading the same newspapers as everybody else i did not have any special insight person so you so you stayed with what you had yeah, you said this too this too shall pass the world has been there done that so nothing yeah, so much yeah. uh see we like to say this so if we knew that covid will be so serious and the world will be locked down for almost two years uh and things like that maybe we would have sold off everything but we did not know that it would happen yeah. again did we know in 
there would be a global financial crisis answer is no yeah uh, so uh, if you read uh, stephen kavi and the seven habits of highly effective people he says there is a circle of concern and there is a circle of influence so uh, things like pandemics or wars between two nations and all these are circle of concern uh, we can't do anything about it what is under our influence we can decide which managements to partner with which businesses and sectors to invest in mm-hmm. uh, what valuation we enter at uh, how much portfolio weight should be given to individual companies those are the kind of things so we keep focusing on that rather than worry too much about what could go wrong what could go right and uh, just go all over the place in terms of uh, tracking numerous variables yeah i i would i would suspect that that kind of an approach uh, would bring so much peace and calm to your work day right because you would just know what to not focus on and what to focus on and what you're focusing on is something you can influence you can actually deal with it so so yeah that's that's a great thought as well thanks for sharing that uh on this podcast we don't discuss anything current i'm not going to ask you the question that you've been asked 25000 times why do you invest in global stocks that's not our beat we're not going to do that however i'm going to ask you one question uh uh related to unconventional uh unconventional bets for lack of a better word uh so uh, full disclosure i'm an investor in your fund so i i get to see the fact sheet regularly and i have so couple of things which i note i'll mention and you can tell correct me or not uh one thing i deeply appreciate is that you communicate extremely clearly on what is it you're setting out to do and what is it you're doing i remember in 2019 or 18 19 you uh, spoke somewhere and said that you expect uh, your overall cash allocation to reduce over a period of time or some it was i, I don't remember the year maybe i'm getting the year wrong and uh, those days used to be 25 30% cash or something and i saw what you say is what you do very very clearly uh, then you made that famous statement last year which i loved i tell it to everyone we have underperformed we are underperforming and at some point in time in in a in the future we'll underperform so you're managing expectations you're being totally transparent right uh so it helps i think you've got all your investors hopefully all of them on your side in terms of thought process in this journey that you're taking us and you're taking a lot of the people often you make pretty contrarian calls right which not which typical fund managers may not do and uh it's not important which stock it is it is so i'm trying to understand uh again it goes back to how do you draw that conviction because each of these bets actually ends up being pretty significant in terms of a portfolio and so that's one what gives you the conviction of unconventional bets and second i have actually noticed that you stick to it and you let it play out and uh you know as the last so many years have told us you're usually right but uh, again how where do you get this conviction and where do you get this will power to let it play out and all along communicating clearly to everyone 
Sure. So firstly, uh, you mentioned it usually plays out. It may play out. It may not play out. So there are there are companies where uh, things have not worked the way we would have expected. But that is the nature of the activity that we do. Uh, so let us say you and I had a special coin with us, which came heads 70% of the time and was tails 30% of the time. And uh, if you when you double, if you lose, you give up the money. Then the right approach would be to bet on heads at every toss That's because right. yeah. it has a 70% probability of making money for you. So that's what we do in a portfolio of 20 stocks. We select the ones which have a higher probability of going up, lower probability of going down, higher payoff on the upside, lower payoff on the uh, downside. Does it mean that each coin toss will turn out to be heads? No. 30% of the time, it will go against you. So that's the nature of activity. So when we decide on whether to buy something or not to buy something. Uh, from first principles, we go with the first question, is this promoter group, management group worth investing with? Mm -hmm. If the answer is no, we don't invest. Is this sector very, very competitive? Uh, so even if it's a high growth sector, if it's a very commoditized business, uh, chances are it may not make a lot of money for the investors. So here we keep in mind Benjamin Graham, who said obvious prospects for physical growth do not translate into obvious profits for investors. So plenty of examples in this space. So uh, private sector airlines, for example, in India, we had Indian Airlines monopoly and it was opened up. Still, most airlines went bust. The telecom sector in India, where earlier MTNL, BSNL were monopoly operators, uh, but a lot of people lost a lot of money in the telecom sector. So we try away from these uh, super competitive sectors. We stay away from very, very leveraged balance sheets. So in the pa pandemic, uh, let's say if you took two retailing companies, one was very leveraged, the other had cash on the balance sheet. The leveraged company went bankrupt and the one with the cash could actually expand in that period. So we stay away from very, very leveraged businesses and finally pay a reasonable valuation. So this is the approach on first principles basis. Now, sometimes that agrees with the market view. Sometimes it's contrary to the market view. Either way, you have to come to your own conclusion. After we arrive at our conclusion, uh, we act on it and we communicate, as you mentioned, uh, through our fact sheet notes, through our uh, YouTube videos to the uh, com community at large and through our annual meetings. So if there's a fundamental flaw in our thinking, we get feedback from smart investors. Mm. Uh, like you are one of the investors. There are 20 lakh other investors. So if a lot of people push back and say that this is the flaw in your thinking, we go back to the drawing board and see whether that makes sense or not. But otherwise, if the facts are in our favor, if on first principles basis, it looks like an attractive investment, we let it play out and 
some of them will go wrong just because of the yep. probabilistic nature of investing. But on average, it works reasonably well. Yep. So uh, just to recap, you're looking at the management. So I'll, I'll flip it. You're trying to look for the right management, you know, well-managed companies, good capital allocators, you know, do the right thing for the shareholders, etc. You're looking for a sector which is which is high growth, but also the competitive scenario is such that it allows that growth to translate into profits, right? Then you you stay away from leverage uh, as much as you can. You know, you, I'm sure you have thresholds, and then you pay a reasonable valuation, a reasonable multiple to buy the business. So simple model. Just take conviction. You have to stick to it. But uh, again, I think uh, uh, the the I think the Humility you guys use is that you're listening still. You may have all the conviction in the world, but you're listening. That did you miss something? And some of the fund managers who've been on this podcast, and uh, it's so appreciative. So one of the fund managers told us that they, you know, they have an investable universe, which they are tracking for years. You know, someone told me he had, one of the fund managers told me he had notes from 20 years ago on a company. So if he met a company, he'll say, in 2002, you told me this <laughs> and you did it. Which I like, but you didn't do this. Why? So, uh, so uh, the, the the point. Uh, I I just lost my uh, line of thought. I'm sorry about that. But uh, the the thing the fund manager was telling me is to get back to that point that they have the 450 companies. They look at those companies, attract those companies, but when they decide to invest, they don't go all in. They make a small investment and actually see whether their thesis is playing out. So after all that conviction, all that study, but the humility tells them they could still be wrong. So let's see it play out in the real world and then increase the stake. And I thought, I thought that's nice, right? Uh, you're, you're, you're sort of open to being wrong. And that in itself lays a great foundation from learning, being a learner and hopefully doing well over time. Yeah. So uh, in terms of concentration versus diversification, I think that there's a, a reasonable balance that one can strike. So uh, if you have 100 stocks and if you have 1% allocation to all the 100 stocks, yeah. even your best idea may not contribute meaningfully to the portfolio. If that 1% doubles, then still the portfolio return is only 1%. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, if all your money is in one stock, if the stock falls by half, your portfolio falls by half. Yeah. So. When you have 20, 25, 30 stocks, that's a reasonable mix between uh, conviction and risk management. So uh, yeah. both need to go hand in hand. That's right. So what are your thoughts on position sizing? Uh, how do you think of position sizing and how do you ensure that over time it plays to your advantage in a, you know, from a return perspective? Yeah, so position sizing, this... Uh, a little bit of science and a lot of art in that. So science part is the stock number of 25 or thereabouts and try and keep uh, them somewhat uncorrelated. So you have sectoral limits and group limits and various other things that come into play. The art part is that uh, sometimes the position sizes are driven by relative stock price movements. So uh, if you have a 4% weightage to a stock and it doubles in a short span of time, it will go up to 8%. So uh, then what do you do? Do you trim it? Do you let it run? 
so those are the kind of uh, judgment calls which come about uh, also how much proportion of a company should you own so you should not own so much that your own entry and exit uh, drives the price up mm-hmm. drives the price up and down so uh, a lot of those factors uh, come into play uh, i don't have a formula to give in terms of position sizing but yeah i think as long as you have individual company weightages somewhere in the region of uh, 3 to 7 8% it should be more or less okay again given the space that you that we operate in uh, 10% is the hard limit per stock so we don't go beyond that in any case yeah and uh, do you guys look at the index weightages not like so you- much not so okay. much yeah because i would say even that's quite contrarian because uh, a lot of fund managers would also look at what the weightage in the index is because that's what they're being benchmarked against okay uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, the other aspects of the podcast right um, something which i should have asked you first but maybe we'll get back we'll come to it now which was your first big investment failure uh first big investment failure i think were uh, psu oil retailers oil marketing companies oil marketing companies and this so was this is in the pms days in the pms days yeah, yeah, yeah. at that time uh the at the time of buying the thesis was that uh these companies have a network which is hard to replicate so they own petrol pumps in all the major cities and land is not available in those cities so on the highways you may be able to replicate uh filling stations but not in the cities and even on airports they have these uh aviation turbine fuel uh, bunkers and all that and they are effectively locked into those situations plus there was a talk of uh, disinvestment in at least one of the large companies which would have unlocked value so uh, that was the buy case and a few years down the line the privatization did not happen uh, crude oil prices shot up and these companies were being forced to sell fuel at a discount uh, so the interesting part is that a bull market will hide a lot of sins so here we did not actually lose money in terms of Uh, selling price being significantly lower than buying price or anything like that maybe we made a small amount of profit the biggest loss was in terms of the opportunity cost mm-hmm. where the index went up quite a bit and these companies did not return uh, so much to us yeah but you could be excused for that because in the 90s there was this big movement on investing in psus because india was changing they're going to get privatized they're going to become more efficient oh, I, i have excuses for all my failures don't worry <laughs> about that yeah okay. i i fool myself in terms of uh, all the things which went wrong were the market's failures market's and failure. everything <laughs> that went right was my smartness okay on that happy note let's move forward uh so we we broadly discussed your stock selection process you know you already preempted that and we spoken about that 
uh, one common theme that comes across a go- uh, in multiple episodes of the investor hour is the importance people place on the return on capital and the incremental uh, return on capital what are your thoughts on that on uh, on how much importance to give that point and because retail investors overlook that completely they are not looking at return on capital they're looking at p they look, they may look at return on equity a little bit but they're not really looking at incremental uh, return on capital etc your thoughts please yeah so a simple way uh, i explain to investors or retailers is that let us say if i came to you with a proposal uh, where you put in 50 rupees i will put in 50 rupees we'll start a business with 100 rupees and annually it will make a profit for us of 5 rupees or 6 rupees would you partner with me in such a business and typically most people get what i am trying to convey they would say that oh i can get seven and a half rupees in the bank account Uh, interest rates are seven and a half rupees so why would we start a business and bother with running it uh, if we are going to make five rupees or six rupees profit at the end of the year so i say that that is what return on capital employee is if you as a shareholder put money in a company and the company creates a factory or a network of retail outlets or uh, office campuses for IT services or whatever the businesses, telecom towers, uh, leasing aircrafts. If at the end of the period, if on shareholders' money, it is not going to earn maybe 12% or 15% at the bare minimum, why would you even start such a business or invest in such a business? People get that intuitively. Yeah. And I'm, I'm still surprised. I don't know whether that's your experience in the interactions you have with retail investors. This is a very ignored uh, fact, uh, a point of study, if you will. Yeah, so what? where things get confusing is that the share prices don't trade at book value, right? Mm-hmm. So let us say there is a business with ROC of 8%. Okay, but it is available at one fourth the book in terms of the share price. Uh, got so it. on your purchase price, you are making maybe getting thirty two percent. Thirty two percent, right? And a business with a ROC of twenty percent or a ROE of twenty percent that is available at ten times book. Mm. So on your purchase price, you are getting two percent. So that's where the P ratio comes in or reverse of P ratio would be the earnings yield. Uh, so the high ROC, high ROE businesses never trade close to book. And that's where the thing gets interesting and challenging. Uh, how much should you pay up for the opportunity of reinvesting capital at a high ROC and things like that. And it's it takes a lifetime to learn that. That is not something which is easy otherwise it's very simple if yeah. all equity is available at book value then you select the one with the highest uh, return on equity yeah that's a very interesting point that's thought provoking yeah well if it was that easy just look at the return on capital and a lot of problems would be solved in life okay thanks for that uh moving on 
uh, we spoke about how to pick a stock, you know, what do you look at, the various parameters, etc. When do you decide to exit a stock? So if the uh, business model changes or if the fundamental assumptions that went into a investment thesis, if those turn out to be wrong, you have to exit it. Whether you are making a profit, making a loss, doesn't matter because your approach is wrong. And uh, even at the current market price, if the uh, investment does not make sense, one has to go to the exit uh, doors. If it's a temporary issue, if there's a one-off uh, event, let's say uh, if you are in the hospitality space and uh, there's a weather-related event where there's flooding in that area or something and it is going to be a one-quarter or a two-quarter problem, then obviously you wait out for the situation to normalize. If it's a valuation thing where valuations are increasingly becoming expensive, then it's not a one-shot exit. We tend to reduce our weightage over a period of time, maybe months, maybe quarters. Uh, and if valuation keeps going up and it moves beyond the comfort range, then we may completely exit a stock. Okay. What do you do with stocks where you have conviction, but they don't move in price? Typically, we tend to wait. So we have been patient. So in uh, yeah, if it takes a very, very long time, let's say five years, nothing happens to the stock price or to the business, both, then mm -hmm. obviously something is wrong in our thesis. But otherwise, we tend to wait a reasonably long period of time, three years, five years. Wow, that's the, that's quite some waiting. But uh, all along, you're tracking the business. So business is doing well, price is not reflecting. So, okay, we'll wait it out. Yeah, I like that approach. It's uh, uh, it's a better version of buy and hold because uh, or buy cheap and hold and wait for the market to correct. Here you've got a good business because the markets are not recognizing, but you have to be sure of your research. You have to have a high conviction and you wait it out. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you detect fraud or how do you prevent yourself or prevent, uh, uh, how do you prevent being caught in a fraudulent situation? Or have you been caught before once in such a stock? And if you can share an experience. So uh, I don't think we have been in situations of uh, out and out fraud. So we haven't uh, fortunately had a Satyam kind of situation where mm -hmm. the cash was not there. But uh, yeah, typically there are various books which are written on this subject matter. And uh, these days a lot of uh, data is available. Some of the portals do it uh, on a subscription basis for you. Uh, in terms of give you data on the number of employees, whether provident fund is being paid on time or not, whether GST is being paid on time or not, uh, red flags in terms of uh, frequent auditor changes or uh, director changes and uh, stuff like that. Uh, but otherwise, basically, we go on the basis of the audited financials and the notes to accounts and uh, things like that. Uh, some work may happen in terms of the uh, channel checks and stuff like that, but nothing is 100% foolproof. So uh, someone who's very, very motivated in terms of uh, 
defrauding investors may still uh, mm -hmm. get by but by and large so far we have not had uh, too much by way of uh, losing money in terms of fraudulent situations in one company where we had invested when we invested it was a services company where uh, their payment would come upfront even before the services are given and uh, negative working capital business but then uh, soon after we bought the company they changed their business model in terms of uh, going in for some capital expenditure and uh, where revenue come would come back ended and things like that so uh, we did not think it was a fraud at that time but we felt uncomfortable with the changed business model and with the way the balance sheet started looking and we exited the company soon after uh, did not make much or lose much so it was a pretty quick entry and exit but that company later on uh, went to the cleaners so uh, whether a fraud was involved or it was just bad business decision making or uh, that is uh, subjective but uh, yeah we got saved in a couple of cases where we exited when we saw uh, warning signs mm -hmm. okay now uh, talking about you personally what are your thoughts on asset allocation i think people should do what is uh, according to their life stage and needs and according to their risk appetite uh, so obviously a uh, 25% uh, a 25 year old uh, in a government job should not have 100% of the money in savings bank account or in a liquid fund that person has uh, yeah. job security and a long career ahead uh, it should be skewed towards equity and a 80 year old retiree needing monthly cash flows to uh, meet expenses should not be equity heavy so uh, there are some of the obvious examples but what also matters is uh, how much comfort you have in terms of it being in uh, volatile assets like equity so partly it's driven by uh, personal attitudes and personal tolerance of uh, volatility yeah okay uh, what are your thoughts on real estate gold and other asset classes forming part of the allocation uh, so real estate is gives some diversification as compared to equity uh, it comes with its own challenges in terms of it being not divisible so you can either buy a house or not buy a house if you have 10% of the money you can't say i want to own 10% of this house or this office block or things like that that's as far as direct real estate investing goes plus transaction costs are high stamp duty and all that uh, it requires upkeep so you need to negotiate with tenants and uh, pay municipal taxes on time and do the Uh, repairing work and all of that so with the recent introduction of reits in india uh, at least in the commercial real estate space uh, that problem is somewhat taken care of so it can be a good source of diversification for people who want some assets apart from equities uh, gold as such is a asset class with no cash flow unless you are buying the 
sovereign gold bonds or things like that but it is protected against currency devaluation over the years or it has been protecting some amount of purchasing power or most of the purchasing power in india most people are having gold in the form of jewelry which is passed uh, generation to generation so i don't think uh, people have a huge need to buy gold separately but uh, some people may choose to have a portion of their wealth in yeah. gold as well i think in a country like uh, india which is uh, which is always uh, capital hungry which will import capital for long to come which implies a weaker currency over time uh, and and that's what history has told us also uh, gold is just such a nice hedge for a weakening currency i think uh, if i am not mistaken most of the return in the current in the uh, gold rate for indians is the depreciation of the rupee Yes. gold was about 800 dollars in 1977 78 is 2000 dollars now so in this amazing period of 40 years or 50 years is just you know gone up two and a half times 150% but in rupee terms this is a jackpot <laughs> so okay uh moving on so uh rajiv you have kids i have one daughter daughter okay great wonderful so how are you teaching a daughter about money or uh, how are you introducing her to the world of investing and money okay so she knows what i do for a living uh, okay. she's heard me talk about uh, basics of finance to undergrad students uh, and uh, she's come with me to uh, omaha berkshire meeting a couple of times nice uh, academically she is in the first year of uh, her computer science engineering so uh, right now it doesn't seem like she'll pursue a career in finance but who knows down the line but she's aware of what i do the power of compounding the power of saving and investing and stuff like that oh, nice so you're not facing the issue that uh, or rather you have advantage because grandfather did it father did it i might as well know some of it huh? yeah <laughs> i expect her to be able to manage her finances properly good good uh, I, i was also going to say that uh, she's doing engineering which dramatically increases her chances of managing money because a lot of the engineers ultimately end up as money managers okay uh, so that's nice uh, your thoughts on giving away wealth it's a personal preference uh, there are some people who are in this constant race to upgrade lifestyle uh, as they live so uh, if you have a bike you want a car if you have a entry level car you want a compact suv to a large suv to a rolls royce to and there's no end to it uh, so whether you believe in this study or not where the Uh, personal happiness and satisfaction peaks out at a certain income and wealth level i believe that so in the initial stages uh, more money gives you more happiness because the basic discomforts of life get taken away you get a good place to live you get a good vehicle you have adequate risk covers in place and your mind it as peace is at peace because of uh, financial security but then uh, 
if you are on that what is called a hedonistic treadmill where uh, you want a new high every time and you want something bigger and better all the time uh, then that doesn't bring happiness uh, beyond a time so to my mind whatever is required for personal financial security personal consumption needs is there and whatever is surplus should be recycled for good of the people that's a nice thought. Uh, how much time do you spend reading? Most of the working days reading. Uh, yeah. Several, several hours, five, six, seven, eight hours a day yes. reading. And what do you typically read? Annual reports, books, magazines. A variety of things. Yeah. All of these. Any global publications you read which you think uh, helps you become a better formed investor? So earlier, there used to be this thing of bundled content, right? So either you subscribe to one magazine or you did not subscribe to that magazine or a newspaper. Uh, same with cable TV channels. You were subscriber to Z or not subscriber to Z. Hmm. These days, there is streaming in all sorts of media. So you can read one article from The Economist, one article from uh, Wall Street Journal and really you have to curate your information so i'm not so much driven by publication uh, sometimes the reading could be just a blog where you are following someone or it could be uh, a twitter feed or something like that so it's more about curating and filtering the content based on the interest areas that's a very nice thought typically i ask uh, for publications but uh that's nice. You can actually read by piece. You curate what you want to read and read wherever it's available. That's a nice thought. Okay. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about India. Uh, and I also want to talk to you a little bit about Parak Parik. So uh, let's start with Parak Parik. Uh, tell us a few things that uh, you think are his core values which could help someone be a better person, better investor, better stock picker? So one obvious thing was anyone who knew him for any length of time knew that he had interests beyond work. So it was not that uh, he was trying to be become the richest person and uh, do work all the time or to seek new clients all the time or to seek the next investment idea and things like that uh, so he took up singing uh, he took up uh, playing a musical instrument he would spend time for his swims and for meeting friends and for travel so work-life balance was something that one learned from him uh, i got introduced to uh, the Vipassana meditation uh, by him, uh, the subject of behavioral finance and the uh, need for keeping your emotions under control, both in good times and in bad. So these are the learnings. Again, we spoke about the uh, giving back or the custodian principle or the hedonic treadmill. So uh, why not to hanker after lifestyle upgrades all the time and why to uh, 
be content with what you have and uh, stuff like that. So he was a multifaceted person and there were a lot of learnings in terms of interaction with him. Yeah. The other thing which it's very, very difficult to replicate is the kind of a people person that he was. So uh, sitting next to virtually any employee in the person, uh, in the organization and uh, being able to figure out the emotional pulse of that person and one look at you and uh, you could uh, figure out how you were feeling if you were down and you did not have to say a word. He would immediately get to know that something is wrong and he would talk to you uh, trying to figure out what is wrong and help you out in some way. Uh, something that would not be considered politically correct these days, but uh, uh, if he thought that you were not taking care of your health, you were becoming overweight or something, mm -hmm. he would fat shame you saying, your tummy <laughs> is coming out, please control your diet and uh, start ex exercising. So he was very per uh, particular about people taking care of their health. He was very involved huh, with the people around him, yes. which is nice. Nice to know. Uh, a, a little bit about India. Uh, so India has had multiple starts, right? One of big start was 91, 92, the reforms. Uh, lots has changed since then, but a lot of people also say there was like a, a start which ultimately stuttered, sputtered, whatever you call it, and sort of we went into a, a phase where nothing much happened. Now people believe there's genuinely change and they can actually see uh, India doing a whole bunch of things in the years to come. Now, uh, the way you run your fund, you're a bottom-up stock picker. Uh, so you're not, you're not, you don't, you don't have a theme per se in that sense. But from your perspective, how are you seeing India today? And if you and talk to us and tell us how we should think of India, or what what we should look for, and how it should inform us about our decisions we make uh, in our investing uh, in time to come. As a citizen, I think there's plenty to be happy about. So, uh, as we say, we are in Azadika Amrit Mahotsav, 75 years. If we look at our own region, where a lot of countries became independent virtually the same time. So, if we look at Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Myanmar, Nepal, or the entire neighborhood, we seem to be re doing reasonably okay. Uh, you mentioned stops and starts and things like that. That's part and parcel of every country's journey. But broadly, we seem to be doing okay. Uh, we are improving in terms of the uh, literacy, in terms of the access to sanitation, in terms of access to food, shelter, clothing, infrastructure. All those are positives. We have demographics on our side where we have a, a young population. Uh, globally, also in terms of geopolitics, there is this concept of French-shoring where people don't want to invest with autocratic governments or very belligerent governments. So broadly, things are going our way. Uh, does this have too many investment implications? I'm not so sure. So you mentioned being bottom-up stock picker or things like that. Just step back and think about it. Global commodities, uh, 
uh, be it steel, aluminium, uh, crude oil. Uh, does it matter which country you are in? So, uh, uh, ONGC will get the same price per barrel as what an oil company anywhere else will get for the same quality. So, what depends on how much production they are able to make, uh, reserves to production ratio, and things like that, which have nothing to do with the country's economic growth or policies or things like that. So, uh, metals primary commodities, uh, these are linked to the global economy and the global prices. Uh, same way, a lot of our listed universe uh, supplies to the uh, export market. So all the IT services, the uh, pharma basket and so on. Uh, a lot of companies have made huge acquisitions abroad so Tata Motors is not just about uh, the Indian car market. It's about a Jaguar Land Rover. A Bharti Airtel is about their African operations. A Hindalco is about Novelis. So we have a lot of these interlinkages. Uh, so I'm increasingly no country is operating on its own. We live in a interconnected world. We live in a globalized world. So. Yeah, one has to look at opportunities wherever they arise. And uh, an interesting piece of research has been done. And uh, the viewers of this can Google this up. So it's a study on the correlation between GDP growth rates in the country and the stock market returns. So the correlation actually came out to be zero to mildly <laughs> negative. So. Uh, uh, again, uh, if we look at a country like China, it has had good GDP growth over the past few decades. Yeah, terrible uh, returns now. But the equity returns have to uh, investors have not been that stellar. So, uh, if more aircraft are leased out and more flights are run, more passengers are transported, does it mean GDP growth? Answer is yes. Does it mean more profits to airline shareholders? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. So yeah. again, coming back to the point, obvious prospects for physical growth do not translate into obvious profits for investors. Yes. So one has to take into account a lot of other business factors, uh, competitive intensity, pricing power, yeah, those kind of things apart from just the GDP. I like the way you framed it. As a citizen, it's much better. But when it comes to stock picking, there's so many more things you have to uh, take into account. Rajiv, we are out of time. One final word from you, a message to all the viewers and listeners. Happy investing. Wonderful. On that note, Rajiv, thank you very much. I know you're super busy. You took out the full 90 minutes we asked for. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Investor Hour. I'm very excited to hear what you have to say about this episode or the podcast in general. Be sure to write to me at info at equitymaster.com. That's I-N-F-O at equitymaster.com. Thank you once again and see you at the next edition of the Investor Hour. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.